Well, good morning. If you'll reach for your Bibles with me to the book of Genesis, we'll be in Genesis chapter 20. I also want to echo Happy Mother's Day to all the mothers out there. I am not ashamed to say I was a mama's boy, still am, so no denying that. So, Scripture reading today will be in Genesis chapter 20, and we will be reading all 18 verses of chapter 20. If you're in need of the Q Bible, you can find today's reading on page 17. Follow along as I read Genesis chapter 20. From there, Abraham journeyed toward the territory of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur, and he sojourned in Gerar. And Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman who you have taken, for she is a man's wife. Now Abimelech had not approached her. So he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Did he not himself say to me, she is my sister? And she herself said, he is my brother. In the integrity of my heart, in the innocence of my hands, I have done this. Then God said to him in the dream, Yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart, and it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now then, return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, so that he will pray for you, and you shall live. But if you do not return her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. So Abimelech rose early in the morning and called all his servants and told them all these things, and the men were very much afraid. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us, and how have I sinned against you, that you have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? You have done to me things that ought not to be done. And Abimelech said to Abraham, What did you see that you did this thing? And Abraham said, I did it because I thought, There is no fear of God at all in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. And when God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, This is the kindness you must do me. At every place to which we come, say of me, He is my brother. Then Abimelech took sheep and oxen and male servants and female servants and gave them to Abraham and returned Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, Behold, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. To Sarah he said, Behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. It is a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all who are with you, and before everyone you are vindicated. Then Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech, and also healed his wife and female slaves so that they bore children. For the Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. Father, Lord, we come this morning, Lord, and we thank you for your word. Father, we thank you that you are faithful when we are faithless time and time again. You remain faithful throughout. Lord, I too pray, Lord, and thank you for the gift of motherhood. Lord, your design, Father, and we know that your design is perfect. So, Lord, bless mothers today. Bless those godly mothers. We ask as a church in your name, I pray. Amen. In the 1970s, there was a TV show that was rather popular back then. Some of you may, if you're a little older, may remember it. The uh, Bob Newhart Show. And in the Bob Newhart show, comedian Bob Newhart plays a psychologist whose interactions with his wife, his friends, and his patients lead to all all these humorous situations and dialogue. And and so in one such situation, a, a new client comes in, sits down in Bob's office for a counseling session. And before he begins, he first explains to her his billing system. So he tells her, I charge $5 for the first five minutes, and anything after the first five minutes, well, that is free. But I have found that generally I don't need more than five minutes of counseling. She doesn't know what to say. It sounds great. He he looks at his watch and says, all right, go. And she begins to explain her problem. I have this fear of being buried alive in a box, she says. 
I just think about being buried alive and I panic. Has anyone ever tried this? He asked. No, but, but it makes my life horrible and I can't go through tunnels and elevators. So what you're saying is you're claustrophobic. Yeah, well, I guess so. Now I'm going to tell you two words and I want you to listen carefully and take them out of the office, take them home with you and incorporate them into your life. Are you ready? Stop it. She looks shocked. Stop it. You want me to just stop it? I I can't. It's been with me since childhood. No, no, no. We don't go there. Just stop it. So I'm supposed to just stop being afraid of being buried alive in a box? There you go. Well, it's only been three minutes, so that will be $3. And off the scene goes in the movie or in the TV show. It's Mother's Day. Moms, I... I I dare to ask how many of you have told your kids in frustration, stop it. And you say it repeatedly because your kid does the same thing repeatedly. Just stop it. In those moments of disobedience when your kids do the same thing again, whether you're a mother or a father or you have watched kids, we've all yelled to them, stop it. And I have to admit, when I read this passage here in Genesis chapter 20, I just want to tell Abraham, stop it. Kind of makes me wonder if that's what God wanted to tell Abraham. Stop it, Abraham. Because in this passage, we see Abraham doing pretty much the same thing he did back in Genesis chapter 12. Going into a new area and passing his wife off as his sister, to save his own skin. And pretty much the same thing happens. The king takes Sarah into his house to be his wife, jeopardizing God's promise instead of trusting God's promise. And think about it. Abraham has now been walking with God for for some 25 years, and yet we see him here. He's faltering in his faith once again. He's committing the exact same sin he committed early on in his life of faith. He's still doing the same thing. And you just want to tell him, Abraham, stop it. And so just like Abraham, I'm sure there are many of you, if not all of us here this morning, we can identify a little bit here with Abraham. Because just like Abraham, there are are some habits, there are some sins in our lives that we can continue to struggle with and succumb to. Maybe it's a sexual sin, maybe it's anger, perhaps gossip, maybe it's just laziness, maybe it's greed or pride or selfishness, whatever it is, this story here answers a question in which we can all relate to. And that question is this, what happens when we sin again? And perhaps even again and again, what happens then? Well, this story answers that question. And here's what we learn up front. Here's the answer to that question. God is always, always, always faithful to achieve his purpose of grace in our lives. Aren't you thankful that God's faithfulness does not depend on your faithfulness? God is faithful to achieve his purpose of grace in our lives, and that is put on full display in the life of Abraham here as God once again demonstrated his steadfast love to Abraham, his faithfulness to protect the promises that he made to Abraham. And so in this story, what we see is God protecting the integrity of his covenant promises to Abraham by confronting a king in a dream and threatening him with death if he didn't return Abraham's wife back to him. We see here in this story God's faithfulness to the promise that he made to Abraham. You might remember it back in Genesis 12 where 
He would bless those who bless Abraham and he would curse those who curse Abraham. And ultimately what we see is God protecting his plan of salvation to bring Jesus Christ through the descendants of Abraham in order to bless the whole world. So what happens when we sin again? Well, this story of Abraham and Abimelech showcases, and oh, does it showcase. I mean, it lifts it high, it displays it, and it showcases it for us, God's grace to sinful people like you and I. What we see here, number one, is that Abraham acts faithlessly in stubborn sin, and he does so again. We may have this mistaken notion that the Christian life involves becoming more and more godly until, until at last we become saintly like Abraham and we never have to again worry about succumbing to sin. But that's not what the Christian life is like. As we're about to see, even Abraham, who is called the friend of God, is now vulnerable to his stubborn sin. And he is about to suffer a spiritual relapse. Shortly after the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, Abraham pulled up the tent stakes and he journeyed in the land as described here in verse 1. Look at it with me again. From there, Abraham journeyed toward the territory of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur, and he sojourned in Gerar. And so there he lives among people who will later be known as the Philistines. And the king of this people group is none other than Abimelech. Now what Abraham does next is rather troubling. We see the stubbornness of sin emerging again in his life with many of the same consequences. Abraham's stubborn sin is this. It's this his compulsion to lie when the truth might jeopardize his life. That's his stubborn sin in a nutshell. And that's exactly what Abraham does here in verse 2. Look at it. And Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. Some of you know who Yogi Berra is. He's that great baseball sage, and he used to have the saying among several of his sayings. It's deja vu all over again. And just like before, Abraham's deception backfires again on him. In fact, notice this. Look at his stubborn sin. Just break it down into two parts here. Abraham again put his trust in schemes rather than trusting God. Now, can you believe this? It's a repeat of the same scheme Abraham used in Egypt back in Genesis 12. He's lying about Sarah. He's saying that she is not his wife, but she is his sister. How stubborn our sin is, just like Abraham. Once again, Abraham resorted to to trusting in his own schemes rather than trusting in God. A.W. Pink put it this way, and I quote, Sad indeed, inexpressibly sad, was Abraham's conduct. It was not the fall of a young and inexperienced disciple, but the lapse of one who had long walked the path of faith that here shows himself ready to sacrifice the honor of his wife in what is worse, to give up the one who was the focus of all God's promises. In other words, Abraham was ready to trade in all the promises of God for personal safety and security. Can you believe it? In fact, Pink goes on to write, and I quote, What made this matter so much worse in Abraham's case was that it was not a question of being surprised into a sudden fault. It was the reoccurrence of an old sin. Long ago, he had followed the same wicked course in Egypt and had been banished in disgrace. And we, we might be wondering, well, why? Why would Abraham do this again? Why, why would he lie about his wife again? Well, Abraham had this long-standing fear for his personal safety. Abraham was often afraid that someone was going to kill him 
and marry his wife. And now to deal with this fear, he has developed this long-standing strategy of lying about his wife's identity. Now, this was actually Abraham's strategy when he set out many, many years ago from Ur of the Chaldeans. And so this was not merely an occasional lapse under pressure. No, this, this had actually become his default practice. Whenever he moved to a new location, this is what he implemented. This was his default. In verse 13, makes this rather clear. Abraham had instructed It says in verse 13, this is the kindness, he's talking to Sarah, that you must do me at every place to which we come. Say of me, he is my brother. I don't know about you, but that sounds like blackmail to me. Sarah, if you really, really love me, you will do this, in other words. And so Abraham has put the pressure on Sarah from the very beginning to adopt this particular strategy of deception. But shouldn't Abraham have known better than that by now in his life? After all, he had what? He had the very promises of God. And he was supposed to be living by faith in God. And yet Abraham's stubborn sin when facing new people in new places was to trust himself in his own devices, his own schemes, rather than trusting God in the promises that God made for him. Now, don't get me wrong. For the most part... Abraham trusted God. And generally speaking, Abraham, he believed God's promises. And we know that because back in chapter 15, God tells us that it was counted to him. His belief, his faith was counted to him as what? As righteousness. So this does not eliminate that fact. And so for the most part, this is true of Abraham. He believed in God. He believed in the promises of God. Abraham had had these assurances of God's promises. Here's the problem, though. He didn't rub those assurances, those promises into his daily life. He didn't rub them into the details of his life in this particular situation here in a new place of Gerar. See, it's not that Abraham forgot the promises of God. It's just that those promises didn't trickle down into the scary situations of his life, the difficult situations of his life, in which he is experiencing right now in this moment in Gerar. In other words, he did not connect the promises of God with the reality of his life in which he's walking right now. And oh, is that true for so many Christians today? We know the truth about God. We know the promises of God. We know what the Bible says, and we fail to connect them. We fail to live them out. We fail to rub them into our lives and allow the truth of God, the promises of God, to actually make a difference in our lives, in the nitty-gritty details of our lives. One author, Ian Doogie, he writes, he says it this way. Yet isn't that precisely the problem that faces most believers today? Yes. He says, our problem is not so much with the basic doctrines of God's sovereignty and care or with the, quote, big issues of our walk with God. Rather, our problem is with the practical application of the promises of God to the details and difficulties of our daily lives. He's nailed it. That's where we all live. This is where we all struggle. Or as Del Ralph Davis writes, most of your failures do not come because you doubt the Trinity or the resurrection, nor because you've ceased believing in Jesus' atoning death or even his second coming. It's not that I, for example, don't believe in the sovereignty of God. Of course I do. I do fine in my faith until I hear I have a tumor in my colon. I trust the Lord for my salvation, but just not in in this perplexity. And then he makes this statement. He says, doctrinal faith does not become daily faith. And that's where the rub is. That's where the tension is in most of our lives. Doctrinal faith does not 
become daily faith for us. And so then when we find ourselves in these pressure situations, these difficulties of life, we resort to default strategies. Default mechanisms of the flesh, just like Abraham does here. And so once again, we see Abraham putting trust in his schemes rather than trusting God. And once again, notice this, the second observation, Abraham again put his wife in danger rather than protecting his wife, Sarah. You see, by protecting himself with this scheme, Abraham is now exposing his wife to the danger that she will be taken as the wife of some other man. And just as it happened before in Egypt, it now happens again here in Gerar. When King Abimelech, believing that Sarah is Abraham's lovely sister, sent for her and took her into his harem. Now, Abraham is once again... How should we say he's in deep trouble? And Sarah's honor, Sarah's purity is once again in jeopardy. Now, this second relapse is in some ways, it is worse than the first one in Egypt. Since here, Abraham and Sarah, they are on the brink of a birth. Isaac's birth that comes immediately in the next chapter. And so the very promise of a son through Sarah is now put in jeopardy for personal safety because of his lack of trust in God. It makes you wonder, with, with Isaac's promised birth, birth less than a year away, how, how could Abraham do such a thing? And then I have to quickly look in the mirror and ask, well, why do I do such things? You see, Abraham, he's doing this because of his fear, which is really nothing more than a lack of faith. And so once again, we see Abraham, this, this man of faith here, acting as a man of fear, and he's reaping the same consequences. But God, this is so awesome of our Heavenly Father, so gracious of God here. He will not permit Abraham's cowardly sin to stand. Why? Because God is faithful. He's always faithful. And in this particular situation, God is faithful to protect the promise that he made to Abraham and Sarah. Now, before we focus on God's extravagant, abundant, and amazing grace here in Abraham's life, let us just take a time out. Let us just pause here for a moment and recognize and even admit the reality of stubborn sin in our own lives. And here's the reality. We are all prone to stubborn sins. And pressure situations in life make us especially vulnerable to those stubborn sins. Now, again, here's the question. Wouldn't it be great if we could just suddenly become godly and perfect? Wouldn't that be awesome? Sure it would. I mean, I, I, it would for me. I, I'd love it. Bring it on, Lord. I mean, just imagine how different life would be if the instant, the very moment we trusted in Jesus Christ for our salvation, he made us perfect saints. Wouldn't that be awesome? No more struggles with impatience, greed, or lust, or selfish motives. No more complaining, no more gossip, no more passive-aggressive manipulation. Wouldn't that be great? Sure, it would be great. But that's not reality. That's fantasy. And so stubborn sin... The reality is it's an ongoing reality in all of our lives, even for believers who've been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. Listen, indeed, it is true, as the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.17, anyone who is in Jesus Christ is what? He is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Nevertheless, this promise, like so many promises in the Bible, combines an already reality with a not yet reality. An already, but a not yet deferral. We might say it this way. And so already, yes, the moment you receive Christ, you are a new creation where the old has begun to pass away, but not yet has this reality taken place in your life entirely. This is why the Apostle Paul testifies to the ongoing war within us between our 
old nature in the flesh and our new nature in Christ. For example, Paul writes in Romans chapter 7, verses 18 and 19, he says, For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh, for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. And do you not relate to that? Does that not describe your own battles? As you live out the Christian life as a Christ follower. And so while we have not yet escaped the influence of our old nature, listen to me. Oh, listen to this. We have received the Spirit of God whose mission, whose purpose is to transform you into the image of Jesus Christ. Therefore, we do have a power that frees us from the domination of sin. Listen, with Jesus Christ in our hearts and the Holy Spirit of God in our lives, we do not have to succumb to our old flesh. There is victory over sin as God's Spirit continues to change us over a a lifetime. And it is a process. We become more and more and more like Christ, but there is still a battle to be fought. We are still battling the reality of stubborn sin in our lives. Or in the words of Alan Redpath, a a longtime British pastor, he says, the conversion of the soul is the miracle of a moment. But the manufacture of a saint, that is the task of a lifetime. And that is the Holy Spirit's, one of his purposes, one of his jobs in my life as well as your lives. This is why we may struggle in some areas of life till the day we die, because sin continues to to stalk us. It continues to tempt us. And so like Abraham, don't be surprised if you find yourself battling once again with stubborn sin. Don't say stupid things like, oh, God will never have to teach me that lesson again. Oh, yes, he will. Don't forget what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, 12. Let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. And so we see here, Abraham, he's acting faithlessly in stubborn sin once again, but just as we saw with Lot's sin in a cave, where sin abounds, what abounds more? Grace. Grace abounds all the more, and that is what we see here demonstrated, not only in Abraham's life, but in Abimelech's life. So number two, God, look at this, acts faithfully in sovereign grace. Again. Now we know, because we have Scripture, we have the book of Genesis, and so we know the rest of the story. We know that God will not allow Abraham's scheme to follow its inevitable course to tragedy. And the reason is because God made promises to Abraham. And so not even Abraham's faithlessness could eliminate those promises. God recently said to Abraham, just recently as Genesis chapter 18, verse 10, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, will have a son. And so God was not going to allow his promise to be thwarted by Abraham's foolishness here. Therefore, everything we see in the rest of this chapter, I mean everything we see here, is all because of the sovereign grace of God in action. God's intervention in Abimelech's life. God's correction here in Abraham's life and God's restoration in everyone's life involved is all an act of God's grace. And so you see Abraham's stubborn sin in the first two verses here of chapter 20. And in verses 3, what is it? Through 21 or 18, what you see in those verses is all of God's grace. 
Oh, key in on it. Key in on it. I mean, just relish in it. Live in it. And embrace it and let it grip your heart. Notice God's sovereign grace. We see it in three areas, in the first of which is God's intervention. Where Abimelech is restrained from sinning. Notice God's intervention begin in verse 3. Notice what it says. But God. Little hint. Those are the two greatest words of grace in the Bible. But God. But God. Aren't you thankful for the but God in your life? Look what God does in verse 13. God intervened, or I should say verse 3. God did not get fed up with Abraham. God did not abandon Abraham. God comes to his rescue once again, and we just got to shout hallelujah for that. Because, oh, that is what we need over and over again. Look what God does here in verse 3. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. Now, that's one scary dream. That is a scary dream. This is not the kind of dream you want to have where the first words from God are, Behold, you are a dead man. Abimelech was on the verge of committing the sin of adultery when God stopped him, and he did so in an act of grace, which clearly shows how God views the sin of taking another man's wife. Even this pagan king here, King Abimelech, understands the seriousness of this particular sin. And so when God tells Abimelech what he is about to do in his life, Abimelech, he pleads his innocence. Look what he says in verses 4 through 5. Now Abimelech had not approached her. So he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? And by the way, the, that, that, that line right there, his argument, his reasoning, is the same reasoning and argument that Abraham made to save just ten righteous people in Sodom. So even this pagan king is reasoning on behalf of God's mercy and grace, just like Abraham did. Did, did he not himself, speaking of Abraham, Abimelech says, did Abraham not himself say to me, she is my sister, and she herself said, he is my brother, in the integrity of my heart, in the innocence of my hands, I have done this. And so Abimelech is pleading his innocence, saying, God, I didn't know. I was deceived. Listen, my, my hands and my heart are, are clean here. Now, the king was innocent. That was true, is it not? This is true. He is. He did not touch Sarah. And the scriptures make that clear. However, let's not give Abimelech too much credit here. Because it is also true that Abimelech, listen, he, he's right to defend himself. He did not, he didn't know Sarah was married, so he wasn't trying to commit adultery, and he didn't commit adultery, but if he would have slept with her. It would have been what? A sin. And we need to understand that. Therefore, it is very possible, even when we do stuff out of ignorance, it's still sin. It's still sin because we have transgressed against God's word against his ways for us to live. And so even when we do it out of ignorance, it is not an excuse. You see, in this situation, Abimelech's ignorance, listen to me, it was absolutely no protection against his moral responsibility for sin. You cannot plead ignorance for your sin. And though he displayed, yes, there's no doubt about it, this pagan king, he displayed a, a higher moral standard than Abraham in this situation. He was still on the verge of committing sin. That was his intention, and God would have held him accountable for that sin, which makes God's intervention all the more an act of his sovereign grace here. Look what God did in verse 6. 
Then God said to him in the dream, Yes, I know that you have not done this in the integrity of your heart, and it was I who kept you from sinning against me. That's interesting. Not against sinning against Sarah or sinning against Abraham, but sinning against whom? God. Therefore, I, God, did not let you touch her. And so note the emphasis here. This is on God. The whole emphasis on verses 3 through 18 is on God and his grace. And once again, God is saying to the king, I, I am the one who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I, I, I did not let you touch her. You say, well, how, how was that possible? How did he do that? How did God keep Abimelech from sinning? Well, you drop down to verse 17 where we read, then Abraham prayed to God and God healed Abimelech. So what we can infer from that is God struck Abimelech with some sort of disease, some sort of sickness that prevented him from taking Sarah as his wife and committing adultery with her. And so this disease, which must have seemed like a a terrible affliction in his life and even in his whole household and with his servants, listen, this was God's grace. This is God's grace intervening in his life and preventing him from incurring an even greater judgment of sin and guilt by committing adultery with Sarah. And God tells Abimelech what to do in verse 17. He says, now then, return the man's wife for he is a prophet so that he will pray for you and you shall live. But if you do not return her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. Now again, don't miss the emphasis. The emphasis here is on God's sovereign grace. Listen, the Lord was in total control of this situation. God, God was directing all these events. He, he intervened with Abimelech and, and he stopped the situation before it unfolded. And so this story here, when you stand back from it, it reminds us that God is still very active in this world of ours, even today, in restraining evil. And I know it doesn't seem like that, does it? Listen, our God, he's not passive. Our God is not in a panic Even if we are, when we watch the news, read our social media accounts, God is, he's not along for just the ride here in world history. God is active. He is sovereign. He is faithfully fulfilling his plan of salvation in the world. And nothing can stop it, not even the sinfulness of his people. Oh, let us take comfort in that. Let us be confident in that. And now we see God's correction. And God's correction is this. Abraham is rebuked for lying. Abimelech, if you're in his shoes, do you not have every right to feel enraged and offended at Abraham? Sure you would. After all, Abimelech has done nothing wrong to harm Abraham. And yet Abraham placed Abimelech in great jeopardy through his cowardly deception. And so Abimelech, just as we would do, confronts Abraham and he calls him out. Look at it in verses 8 through 10. So Abimelech rose early in the morning and called all his servants and told them all these things. And the men were very much afraid, rightfully so. And then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you that you have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? You have done to me things that ought not to be done. And Abimelech said to Abraham, What did you see that you did this thing? Now just stop and remember something here about Abraham. He was supposed to be what to all the nations? According to the promises that God made in chapter 12, Abraham was supposed to be a blessing to all the nations that he comes into contact with. He was not supposed to be 
a curse or bring a curse upon them. But that is the very thing that he brought to Gerar and the very thing that Abimelech was now facing, a curse. And so it's understandable that Abimelech would rebuke Abraham and confront him. What were you thinking, dude? You trying to just ruin my life? Why did you do this to me? Have I sinned against you that you would bring the sin on me and my kingdom? And so Abraham, at that moment, God working through King Abimelech, God is confronting Abraham about his stubborn sin and his relapse into it. And he's having to own up to it. And God is confronting him, and Abraham is forced now to confess his sin to a pagan king. He's forced to confess that he did deceive the king because he was still at heart, listen to me, a fearful man who did not trust God to protect him. So it is no surprise that Abraham's response is so much like our responses when we're confronted in our own sin. Abraham's response here, if I can say it this way, it is pathetic and it is lame. And we've all been there and done that, have we not? When we've been confronted with our own sins, our own wrongs, our own faults, we offer up these pathetic and lame excuses for why we have succumbed to our sin. Let me just throw out, let me just, I want you to see Abraham's, his feeble excuses here. First of all, he misjudged the people of Gerar when he said, there is no fear of God in all this place and they will kill me because of my wife. Abraham's completely wrong on this issue. There was actually a whole lot of fear of God in this place. He misjudged Abimelech by a country mile. He did fear God. All it took was a dream, and he was immediately zealous to do what was right because of his fear of God. He also misjudged God's power to keep him safe and to protect the promise God made to him. So Abraham's completely misjudging everything about this situation. His perception of it is completely distorted and wrong. Number two, he then rationalized his sin. He rationalized his lie when he says she is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother. And while that is technically true, Sarah was Abraham's half-sister, would that really make everything okay in the eyes of Abimelech? Oh, I, I didn't. Yeah, yeah you're, you're off the hook, Abraham. You think that's how Abimelech's going to respond? No way. Abimelech was almost a dead man here because of this deception of a half-truth. And God was not impressed either by Abraham's technicality since his intention with the whole technicality was to what? Was to deceive. You see, Abraham knew how people would understand this lie, and that was the whole point in the deception. And what is more, Abraham apparently didn't see how the lie undermined his own testimony here. It's almost like he's thinking in his mind and saying verbally to Abimelech, yeah, I, I follow God. I believe in God. I just don't trust him to protect me and his promises, so I lie. That's my default mode. That's how I scoot by in life, especially under pressure situations. And, well, we can relate to that one too. But most of all, notice number three, he blamed God. When Abraham says, God caused me to wander from my father's house. Now, technically, again, that is true, but it's the way in which Abraham is framing it. It's the way he's casting God. It's his perception of it here that is so wrong. You see, Abraham makes, makes his divine call to go to the promised land sound like the worst thing in the world. It's almost like he's having a pity party here, and he's blaming God for it. And so instead of witnessing to Abimelech about God's faithfulness, about God's goodness to him, over the past 25 years, he talked like God had sentenced him to a life of misery. 
And so in a roundabout way, he's blaming God for his sin. Well, God, you know, it's it's kind of your fault here. You caused me to wander from my father's house. And if you hadn't caused me to do that, I wouldn't be in the situation to have to lie. It's sad. And yet again, I look in the mirror because I'm like, well, that's kind of how sad I am. Isn't that a lot like us? Who's to blame for your sin? I can think of a lot of people to blame. The one person I normally don't think of is, well, me. Am I the only one here like that? It might be my wife's fault. I tend to blame her a lot. Might be my parents' fault. Yeah, even my mom and dad. Yeah, it's their fault. I'm the victim of them. Most of all, it might be God's fault. But my fault? No way. And we all do this, especially with the stubborn sins that we commit so easily. And I I like how the Puritans called these stubborn sins. They actually use this term. They call them besetting sins. Besetting sins. Sins that seem so easy that we fall into them and we run after them over and over again. You get into the same sort of situation, which now gives rise to the same sort of fears and then the same kind of sin. And God gives, I believe, this particular story of Abraham. He gives it to us. It's recorded for us here in Scripture as an example of someone who had these very high moments of faith And yet, he also experienced these very low moments of fear that gave rise to Abraham's stubborn sin, and it gave a platform for God's grace to intervene. And this is where we see God's restoration of this whole episode, where everyone is restored with blessing. You see, all was not lost because of Abraham's lapse into a stubborn sin. The conclusion here just drips with this abundant grace of God, where God healed Abimelech, and he even blessed Abraham, which is just astonishing. Abraham's folly was met by amazing grace in verses 14 and 16. Look at it with me again. It says, Then Abimelech took sheep and oxen and male servants and female servants and gave them to Abraham. I'm just like, whoa, what? Abimelech, you were the one offended here. And yet you're you're giving away stuff to Abraham? And he returned Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, behold, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. And to Sarah, he said, behold, I had given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. It is a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all who are with you. And before everyone, you are vindicated. And then God's grace also goes out to Abimelech in verses 17 and 18. And then Abraham prayed to God. Why would Abraham pray to God? Because we already learned that his status before God did not change even because of his sin. God said, he's my prophet. By the way, if you are a child of God and you sin, it doesn't change your status before God. You're still a child of his. And God no longer treats you as a sinner, but he treats you as a son or daughter of his for all eternity. Your status doesn't change, and this is beautiful here. And so Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech and also healed his wife and his female slaves so that they bore children. For the Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. Just think about this for a moment. Ponder on this here for a moment. God's grace brought blessing to everyone involved in this episode in Abraham's life. It's utterly astonishing. How gracious of God to affirm Abraham's role as his prophet and to answer his prayer. How gracious of God to restore the health of Abimelech and his household and to even grant him more children. How gracious of God to return Sarah back to Abraham as his wife and protect his promise that she too would have a son. Sarah, take heart here. Isaac is coming soon. And how gracious of God to turn Abraham's repeat failure into an opportunity to increase his personal wealth. 
we all just ought to, we all just ought to be fall backwards and be blown over by the grace of God here. Because what happens when we sin? Again. And sometimes again and again with the same sin. What happens? Listen, God, God is always faithful to achieve His purpose of grace in our lives. And so I'm grateful to know that God's people do not have to be perfect to receive His grace and His blessings, and most of all, His promise to redeem us and forgive us from our sins. It's no wonder we call it amazing grace. Here's the beauty of God's grace. What God did for Abraham, what God did for Abimelech, listen to me, God can do for you. And God can do it for you over here. And God can do it for you back there. God, God can correct our mistakes. Notice this in your notes. And turn our harm into healing, our blunders into blessing. That's what God can do for you. If you will turn to Him in repentance and seek His forgiveness. In an article by Henry Anderson about the dangers of sin that we face as believers, he writes, listen to me. You should cry out, not just in the moment of salvation, but regularly cry out, Oh God, be merciful to me. I'm a sinner through and through. My only hope is righteousness is not in me, but only you. That is a glorious spirit rock confession, he writes. He says there's no shame there. But there is in covering up sins like Adam and Eve did. We don't relish or delight in our sin. May it never be. At the same time, we recognize it and side with God against ourselves. And then we turn to walk in God's ways. Rent and repeat all for his glory. In other words, what he's saying here is that God's grace brings God's blessings. So acknowledge the stubbornness of your own sin. Turn from your sin to God and receive the promise of His forgiveness of sin. He goes on to write, and I'll close with this. It is a good thing if you recognize that you're a sinner. It is a good thing when you adorn God's view of yourself. When you feel the the sweet sting of conviction from the Spirit, don't turn away from it or try to shove it back down. Instead, praise God for His grace toward you in pointing you in the right direction, back toward Himself. Praise God that He hasn't given up on you, though you continue to sin. Then make a beeline for the cross of Jesus Christ. Look to Jesus who forgives sinners like you and me and follow Him. Remember, God's grace brings... God's blessings. Their heads bowed. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word to us. Give us the grace to hear it, to receive it, to believe it, and to live it. Thank you for your grace in Jesus Christ. And would you search our hearts and show us where we have been guilty of stubborn sins, and we pray you would give us the grace of repentance. Help us to turn to you for blessing and freedom. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.